For this episode, I'd like to jump into a production story that has stuck with all of us after six years in business. And that is the story of our first batch ever, where pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. But how we dealt with it and the magic that came out of it. It shows that even on the worst of days, you can always find a way through. Let's go. Welcome to Courage and Other C Words. I'm your host, Jen Root Martell, and thank you so much for joining me today. So the last few episodes have been a fun and reflective series around sales, and that I will definitely continue to revisit in the future since it's so critical to our business. But for today, I'd like to move beyond that side of the business and dabble in some production reminiscing. In particular, the absolute catastrophe that was our batch number one of cider, a batch that we can definitely laugh about now, but at the time was really anything but funny. But before I get started, I would like to thank you all who have rated this podcast over the last months of its existence. The feedback that I'm getting from listeners has been so validating, and I've really enjoyed meeting people from across the country, brought together by cider and production and just starting a business. If you do have a moment and use Apple Podcasts, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating. I, I know the review part of it can be pretty overwhelming, but you don't need to write out a novel. Just one or two words, hi, or cider is awesome, or what's up, any of those are perfectly valid. Uh, and I, I just appreciate it so much. It, it really helps. So with that said, I feel like most projects no matter how well-planned, have just that moment when you can't imagine anything else going wrong. But then, oh, wait, it does. It's literally Murphy's Law in action in front of your eyes, and there's very little that you can do to stop it. You think you have your shit together, you've done all the planning, bought all the things, but for some reason, the equipment fails you, or you misjudge a certain variable, or luck just flat out is not on your side that day. You just do everything wrong or everything just goes wrong. I wouldn't say this has happened a ton to us, but for some reason, it is usually the case that when things do go wrong, they end up costing so much money. And it has always been my hope that maybe at some point we would still have lessons to learn but they would just stop being so damn expensive. And I can tell you that point never comes. But like most entrepreneurs will tell you, uh, they have learned so much more from the failures than from the successes. That even though things have gone wry, there's something to take away to hopefully fix in the future or do differently or do better. It's always a learning experience. So let's turn back some time to the spring of 2015. I enjoy this story because for me, it was so formative. And like all good memories, I know that if you ask the three of us how it all went down, you would get three very different answers. But this is my podcast. So you will get my side of the story, however blurry and possibly skewed those memories may be. Honestly, there were a few batches in the beginning that didn't go so hot. And it is very possible that they've sort of all merged together in my mind, but so much of the experience is, still seems so fresh. 
it's it's a jumble of excitement, frustration, and the anxiety for sure. And for all of you who are getting started in this industry or just starting a new project or a hobby or another company, yes, absolutely everything might go wrong at first, but there are always ways to turn it around or at least learn from those mistakes. And you just can't let them get you down too much. So here we were, early March 2015. We had spent the last few months building out our new production space in San Bruno, a little 2,000 square foot spot that we have, our only fermentation tank, was tucked away in the corner. And our forced carbonation tank, known as a bright tank in the industry, was sitting right next to it. The two-ton glycol chiller, which is so critical for cider making, it took forever to get here because of, I think it was a worker strike at the LA docks, but it finally arrived from Italy. And we had gotten juice at the end of February to kick off our first fermentation ever. And this tank, our our stainless steel fermentation tank, was unique in that it was one more typical to the wine world. It's called a variable capacity tank, which means that the top is separate from the body. It has a seal around it and an arm like a tiny crane on the top that helps lift it up and down so you can move it kind of up and down the length of the body. Now, in our industry, oxygen is typically the arch nemesis of cider because it brings with it particulates that can cause infections and off flavors that you obviously don't want in your finished product. So variable capacity tanks are great in theory in that the top can be adjusted down to make for a smaller volume of space if you're not fermenting a full tank. And that really cuts down on what we call headspace and thus reduces potential exposure to infection because a lot less air can be around uh, potentially exposing the, your fermenting product. Since this was our first batch, we were definitely not doing the entire 1,000-gallon capacity of our fermentation tank. So we adjusted the top to make the space that we needed, maybe 500 four or 500 gallons. I don't remember exactly how much. And I don't remember a lot about that fermentation. So I guess that was one of the things that did go right, but that's pretty much where it ended. So thus begins the comedy of errors that was batch number one. From that beautiful fermentation and as new cider makers, we were overly concerned about that seal I talked about, the one that went around the top of the tank. We were worried that even a little leak would mess up our fermenting cider. So one day, one of us went to crank some air into the seal to make sure that it was nice and tight. Well, they cranked too hard. And next thing we know, we hear a huge boom noise in the cidery. And as you might have guessed, yeah, the seal completely tore apart. And the tank was as good as totally open and exposed. Even some of the seal, I think, was like hanging down into the cider. So there was just... All types of exposure going on. Perfect. It's exactly what you want. Now, I will say as an aside that for some cider makers and brewers, open fermentation is actually a thing. If you live in a nice natural environment with plenty of fresh breeze and happy wild yeast bouncing around in the air, there are farmhouse ciders on the market that have that just perfect bite of funk at the end and still really smooth finish. It's a very specific process. And something that some people do very well. However, it is not what we are going for in our ciders and not our process. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not our jam. Unfortunately, 
Not really factoring in all of the variables when we were looking for space for our cidery, we had decided to build an urban cider company in the urban space. That was very distinct. I've talked a lot about that. Our little cidery just so happened to be right across the street from a waste management transfer station where on good days or bad days, I guess I should say, you can smell quite acutely all of the death and decay that comes from a ripe bag of trash, except that it's truckloads of it, making a mountain at the end of the street on a weekly basis. I'm sure you can imagine the smell. So for us, our air is chock full of all of the bacteria and yeast and grossness, anything you can possibly think of, anything that is just itching to come in contact with that yummy fermentable sugar that we have, that's found in our apple juice. So hence the overprotectedness of our seal for that tank and for our fermentations in general. Cider is extremely prone to infection at the early stage of fermentation and with nothing to hide behind like hops per se, for example, any infection can be quite unforgiving and potentially making a cider that's just completely undrinkable. So that is why I say as part of my education pitch at festivals, it's actually really easy to make cider. You literally can just throw a bucket of apple juice outside for two weeks. You'll get hard cider. It might not be very good, but it will be alcohol. However, it is much more difficult to make clean cider consistently. And it comes down to winning the battle over infection and keeping your system and your fermentations super clean. Moving on from that side note, we all knew deep down that something had gone horrifically wrong. We couldn't smell it or taste it, but we knew that our fermentation had been exposed. However, not having many other options since that was all the juice we had and we needed to be producing cider, we pushed forward, hoping that maybe maybe we were just overreacting. So we filtered it through our plate and frame filter, which if anyone has worked with one is onerous, time-consuming, and just prone to issues. That being said, we did use one successfully for many years, though we're just always concerned that batches weren't getting all of the filtration that they needed. So we actually had a secondary sterile filtration after the plate and frame to get it down uh, even further to 0.2 micron, just to make sure that absolutely everything was filtered out that needed to be. So into the bright tank, the fermented must went, along with a sizable amount of fresh pressed apple juice to sweeten it up and bring down the ABV. And this is how we actually make most of our ciders in a process called back sweetening. But it does add a level of uncertainty as you are adding fermentable sugars in that fresh juice to a product that is otherwise pretty stable. And I will get into that later because that is, that is a pretty critical point to this whole story. So into the bright tank, crash the bright tank to just above freezing and got the carbonation started. In general, the colder the liquid, the faster the carbonation will happen as it is held in suspension better. The warmer the liquid, the easier it is for that CO2 to fall out of suspension and leave your product super flat. I'm sure you've all had that experience with sodas. Having the bright tank cold is super critical. Cannot stress that enough. Cold temps also inhibit growth of any yeast or bacteria that might have gotten past the filter. So really critical to keeping that product stable. Here we were, batch in the bright tank, crashing, getting it all carved up. We had a date on the calendar that was set with the awesome ladies over at the can van for our first canning run as we had built our cidery around 
accommodating a mobile canning unit, mainly the can van. There was just no way that we could have afforded a canning line ourselves in those early days. So they started up around the same time we did, and it was really a perfect fit for us. When the canning day came around, Greg made it to the cidery first. Uh, Alex, I think, sent him a text while we were on our way, and he came back with, the bright is at 50 degrees. And we were like, no, really. He's like, no, no, that's really, I'm not joking. Remember what I said just a second ago about the importance of cider staying cold? 50 degrees is not it. Not even close. On top of that, to can, we needed the product to be between 34 and 38 degrees so that it wouldn't be a foamy mess going into the cans because that just causes all types of loss. So yeah, way off. The can van uh, was almost there. So we converged at the cidery to find our brand new chiller had completely shit the bed. It would turn on, but would not chill. I think it was the fan or the pump wasn't running like it should. I can't quite remember which one or it might have just been both. But in crapping out, it had allowed the bright to come to room temperature. So couldn't can. The can van ladies ended up heading home, uh, pulled an admin day, and we were left to our own devices to sort out a piece of machinery that we knew absolutely nothing about. The fact that the Italian translated to English instructions were the most crude and impossible things to read also didn't help the situation. So after many chats with the supplier and even an AC repairman we brought in to try to help attempt to make sense of the Italian-made glycol chiller, it turned out the compressor was shot and we would need a completely new machine. The turnaround on it was actually not that long. And before we knew it, they had sent us a new one and we had the bright tank up and running again. A week or two later, Canvan was back and we had our first batch of awesome little silver cans with our snazzy new compass logo filled and ready for the next step. And we were so proud. It was a really exciting moment to see those coming off the line. As part of our process of quality control and so that we don't have to add any more sulfites or chemicals than we need to, we make sure to bath pasteurize all of our packaged products. And as you might imagine, like the canning line, pasteurizers either bath or tunnel, it doesn't matter, are extremely expensive and also take up a ton of space. So being a scrappy little startup, we took the plans for one off of the Cider Google group and decided to build it ourselves. And our bath was composed, still is composed, of a macro bin. And those are seen regularly outside of wineries. They're stacked in really, really tall columns waiting for harvest because that's usually what people load grapes in. With that as the base, the rest of the bath was a concoction of direct heating elements and electric heaters with pumps that were used to keep water circulating. Though, by the time the cans were ready for cooking, that bath was still not done yet. And the reasoning for this was sort of a combination of priority tasks getting in the way, delays in electric heater supplies, and just general procrastination with a project that is so imposing and a little overwhelming. At any rate, the product was abused once more, waiting more time in their cans until they could go through their last step towards shelf stability. So here we were, several weeks later, and it was time to cook the cans that had been through basically hell and back. We were still doing some tastings with cold ones to try to get some of those initial sales because I mean, we were dead in the water otherwise, but we were noticing that the cider was starting to taste a little off. And on top of that, the cans seemed to be getting totter. They like weren't as squishy. 
Both basically are clear evidence of an infection stewing. It seemed as though something had actually made it past the filter and started to go to work on the back sweetened juice we had added or something in that original fermentation had just started actually developing into an off flavor taste that was really not lovely. So this means that our product was re-fermenting. Yeast and bacteria feed off of sugar and apple juice uses a lot of sugar, especially ours. The tautness was coming from a fact that a byproduct of yeast and bacteria eating that sugar is the creation of CO2. So not only was the sweet juice flavor getting totally consumed and off flavors were getting created, CO2 was now being added to an environment where it had nowhere to go inside that sealed can. At least on tanks, there are pressure relief valves on the top to help keep that tank equalized in pressure and kind of prevent cavitation, which is it either sucking in or totally exploding, but not so much in cans, nowhere to go. And you might be interested to know what happens when an overpressurized can gets placed in a very, very, very hot bath of water. Well, I will tell you, the can explodes. And this isn't just a nice little passive pop of the top. No, no. This is a forceful, loud, and very destructive process that you can hear from so far away. Luckily, macro bins also come with matching tops that clip on. And this is critical for our needs for the bath in general, so that the heat doesn't escape from the top while we're trying to cook cans. But now, doubly important, to keep the cans from flying out and cider and very, very, very hot water from spraying everywhere. As a good illustration, exploding cans in a macro bin with the top on might remind you of a bag of popcorn being popped in the microwave and being heated to perfection. It starts with a few pops here and there. Then it crescendos into just pops everywhere. And then it slowly slows down until there are no more victims left to pop. At that point, you've probably burned your popcorn. But that is at least the desired result. You are looking for those pops. With cider, this is as far from perfection as you can get. And watching that macro bin top shake from the assault from within still haunts me to this day. It would make, an, I think, any producer just break down in tears or maybe just me, but definitely me. It is enough, though, to just make your heart break a little and just at the loss of production and energy and money and time, you get the picture because there's just absolutely nothing you can do to stop it at that point. And what choice did we have? We had overpressurized cans that would make a mess and explode on their own, probably if they weren't cooked. So we pressed on. And every drop of 300 cans or so would be another nightmare. In the end, we were left with something like 50 cases of cans that somehow miraculously made it through unscathed. And the rest were emptied out and placed in bags. And I got $13 out of at the recycling vendor by the local grocery store across town. Just devastating. At least it bought a burrito for one of us at the local taco truck. And then what to do with 50 cans of product we couldn't sell. A cider had gone sideways and was in cans that we were hoping to hit the market with and cans that would carry us into the future. We couldn't launch our semi-sweet flagship with this mess. And you might be thinking, but Jen, you said earlier that some farmhouse ciders have a lovely funk and be quite enjoyable. Yes, I did say that. And let me tell you, this cider was not one of those. Envision a metallic-y sweetness paired with a pretty intense funk that reminds you of the elephant house at the zoo with a 
finish that we call in the industry as mouse, which hits you about three to 10 seconds after swallowing and is equal to what one might taste if you licked the bottom of a well-used mouse cage. What one would imagine it would taste like, at least. I do not suggest anyone actually trying that out in comparison. It also, on top of that, turned into a cloudy cider. Uh, so it didn't even look nice. It was just absolutely ruined. That was, that was pretty much the best word for it. So what was the culprit of this disaster, one might ask? And it does help that we live pretty close to wine country. It has some just really great wine analysis labs, really close. So we ran a bunch of samples up to them to find out what exactly was in our cider. And <laughs> what they came back with from a report I found dated May 11th, 2015, because yes, I'm a pack rat and keep everything. The acetic acid bacteria was less than 40 cells per milliliter, which is fair that it didn't taste like apple cider vinegar. That's what acetobacter does. And they tested for four lactobacillus strains, all under 40 cells per milliliter. Perfect. That was acceptable. And then the last line, Onococcus oni, 3,800,000 cells per milliliter. Ta-da! That's the one. And it actually is not a huge surprise. Onococcus oni is a lactic acid bacterium that occurs naturally in fruit mashes and related habitats. Apple juice is a clear winner for that. It's often actually used in wineries to carry out something called malolactic fermentation, which is a critical secondary process in the production of wine after primary fermentation. Critical in wine, not so critical in our cider. We also caught special acclaim because the lab had never before had a can explode during analysis. So that was fun. Made for a probably a pretty fun story for them uh, when they got home. So what does a budding cider maker do with 50 cases of ruined product, you might ask? I did what any frugal conscientious, proactive business owner would do. I put them in five stacks in the corner and ignored them for months in the hopes that I wouldn't have to deal with them and that they would just somehow miraculously go away and cease to be an issue. Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, that is not how things work and problems like these must be addressed at some point. So let's see. We put them in timeout in the corner in the middle of April. Three months went by and finally realized that something did need to actually be done with them. We had moved on to better batches. We were dialing in our processes and really just needed the space for other things. So before we started cracking them open and pouring them down the drain, which is pretty much what I expected we would have to do with them, we threw a couple in the cold room just to see how bad they still tasted. Turns out cider can be aged in cans. Who knew that the mouse aftertaste I was talking about earlier, can in fact fade. To our complete surprise, the cider that we poured out of those cans at the end of the summer, though still cloudy, had turned into a lovely sour cider. It had a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of funk, and a little bit of acidity at the end. It actually tasted pretty good. Who knew that given some time, that funk would actually mellow into something wonderful, Maybe if you deal with this type of thing on the regular, this is an obvious part of the process. I know malolactic fermentation is a process that many use, but for us, we were completely convinced that all of this was a lost cause. Okay, maybe the drain wasn't the best idea for this with this new information in hand. Unfortunately, they were still in South City Cider flagship cans and were still definitely not 
the flagship cider we had been selling for more than a quarter now, and we're building our brand around. Well, when you have a bunch of lemons, what's the thing they tell us to do? That's right. Make lemonade. And we did that. Thus, better luck next time was born. I made a ton of little labels to go on top of the can to help us differentiate them from the good ones that we did have uh, on pallets elsewhere in the cidery. And we still couldn't sell them out in the market, like on shelves. But fortunately, we had enthusiastically signed up for every beer festival and alcohol event that would let us pour that year. What one does when there is no marketing budget. So along came better luck next time to those events. It basically became patented as the happy accident. And people really loved it. Needless to say, after enough events, we had blown through all of those cans. I think it took less than six months. And some of those events, they were donations, which is a bummer, but some did actually compensate us for the cider that we poured, making that batch not 100% lost financially, which was something, I guess. And we got a funny story and a bit of a cult following out of it. It's not too shabby at the end of the day. What I do love most about this whole catastrophe is that we still get people asking about it, even five or six years later. Of course, with that, they also ask if we've been able to do it again. And though the answer is a disappointing no, it's honestly not for lack of trying. We did have a small amount of juice that we tried at one point as an experiment. And only last year, I did a small fermentation in a tank that was way too large. So I couldn't temperature control the process and the must went sideways. So we have definitely been successful on the infection side. Unfortunately, none of them have ended up quite like batch one. That batch is, is just now one for the history books that we can only look back at and laugh. Or maybe still cry a little, if you're me. All I know is that it was quite the learning experience that we spent the next five years trying not to replicate. And with decent success, I would say. I am still constantly frustrated that lessons have to be so expensive, but they do always provide some insight into our processes and procedures that only makes us better cider makers. And so for that, I have to be continually grateful for situations like our catastrophic batch one and how they have impacted us as people and as a company. And that's a wrap. Have you started a project or business and have a funny story of when everything went wrong? Maybe not so funny at the time? Any lessons learned from failures or mistakes that you'd be up for sharing? Please send them on over to info at othercwords.com. I would love to hear all about them. And in the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review to help out this little podcast. Five stars goes a long way, and I so appreciate your support. And for more information about me and this podcast, visit us online at othercwords.com. Talk to you soon, and thanks for listening.